This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Optum, a health services innovation company dedicated to helping people live healthier lives and helping make the health system work better for everyone. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Chinazo Cunningham joined the Washington Post to discuss what we've learned from COVID-19 and how these new lessons will impact the future of healthcare in the U.S. Let's listen. Well, welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at the Washington Post. And I'm pleased to welcome our next guest, uh, Dr. Chinazo Cunningham. We're not related in case anyone was wondering. She's a professor of medicine at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine in the Bronx, New York City. Welcome to Washington Post Live, Dr. Cunningham. Thank you so much, Paige. I'm, I'm happy to be here. As the video before this noted, we have seen higher rates of both infection and death among Blacks and Hispanics in this country, especially compared to whites and Asians. Can you give us what you see as the top reasons for that disparity? Uh, absolutely. So it's it's actually pretty complicated that there are many reasons, sort of levels of reasons for these disparities. So um, when I think about it, I think at the individual level, at the sort of healthcare system level, and then at societal level. And so we know that in at the individual level, um, communities of color, people of color, are more likely to have chronic illnesses such as diabetes or hypertension or heart disease. And those um, conditions put people at higher risk for complications of COVID-19 infection. At the healthcare system level, we also know that there are definitely disparities in access to care. And also, once people access care, how people are treated. And so prior to um, this pandemic, you know, we have definitely seen that there's less access to sort of newer treatments. And with COVID, we see less access to testing among communities of color. Um, and then once in the healthcare system, we know that providers actually uh, have bias and so are less likely to, for example, um, refer people to procedures um, for surgeries um, when compared to sort of white uh, communities. And so there have been stories, for example, of people being sent away from the hospital because they're not deemed to be sick enough. Um, and so, you know, not necessarily being hospitalized. And then, of course, there are huge societal issues, which are really the root uh, factors and the underlying factors here. And, and now we, we hear this term, the social determinants of health, much more commonly used uh, across the country. And that's really about, you know, where we live, where we work and where we play really affecting the health of people. And so we know that communities of color have um, are much more likely to be in crowded housing situations or even homeless. And so people are not able to socially isolate in those conditions. We also know that uh, there are huge differences in employment. So people of color are more likely to have uh, to be essential workers and put themselves at risk for the infection. Uh, we also know in, in terms of incarceration, rates are much uh, more in black and brown people than in whites. And of course, you know, we've 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 heard a lot about how uh, uh, COVID-19 infections have just been, you know, rampant in jails and prisons. Um, and then finally, immigrant populations um, are also definitely at risk. A lot of uh, people who are immigrants are concerned about their immigration status and are less likely to to access health care. So so those, you know, really sort of societal factors are key. Um, and they've been present for, for decades, and now COVID-19 has really exacerbated this.
Well, and that's a great summary of what is indeed a very complex problem. Uh, I want to go back to what you were speaking about initially about uh, kind of on the personal level and the problem of obesity in our country. And I've been thinking more about this recently. My colleagues wrote a story a couple weeks ago about how obesity has turned out to be one of the key predictors of really struggling with serious COVID-19 illness. 42% of Americans are obese and the rates are much higher among African-Americans. Wondering if you can talk about that. Could this, I mean, it sounds like obesity is is a big factor, perhaps even in why our country has seen such mass a massive toll. How is that? You know, that's a longstanding problem. But what are some ways we could be thinking about that particular problem and eliminating disparities there? Yeah. So I I work in the Bronx, um, and my my I'm in a federally qualified health center in the South Bronx, and so obesity is definitely a common problem that I see among my patients. Um, I can also tell you again, you know, really going back to sort of the root causes, when I walk around the neighborhood of my clinic, there are very few options for fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, it's they're sort of food deserts um, where people are really unable to get the kinds of foods that are uh, nutritious. And, and there's also a problem with um, green space, so a lack of access to, you know, the ability to exercise. So that's just like the environment that people are living in, and that definitely contributes to obesity. And as you said, obesity is one of the underlying conditions that we know that people that put people at higher risk for um, uh, complications from COVID infection. And so I think you know we 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 can't just look at the individual level. We have to look deeper and further, and we have to really examine the environments in which people live. I know that some have raised concerns that talk, sort of talking about this issue of how comorbidities like obesity and diabetes are related to coronavirus deaths almost seems as though you're, blame, you're blaming the patient or blaming the person sometimes. At the same time, if you can't have an honest discussion of the underlying problems, it seems as though we're not going to get, a, get to a solution. What is a pr productive way to kind of talk about these issues? Yeah, I think we have to talk about it at all levels, really. So, you know, we tend to sort of, in this country, I think, really look at the in individual and actually blame individuals. Um, but, you know, and individuals certainly have a part in this and, and, and have to really look at their behaviors. And we, as, you know, as medical providers, really try and help people change their behaviors so that they have more healthy behaviors. So, you know, counseling around diet, counseling around exercise. Um, but it can't just end there. Because what we do know from research is that if, if we make substantial changes in policy, um, that that le leads to a tremendous change as compared to the sort of one-on-one. -on -one. And so we have to think about, again, the social determinants of health, you know, where people are living, where people are working, what the environment is like. Is it safe to go for walks outside? Are there, sp are there sidewalks to walk in? Are there parks to walk in? And so, you know, we have to have the conversation sort of at, at both of these levels, at the individual level, but, but then also at the policy level. Uh, imagine for a second that, that you're the president and you can enact any policies that you wanted to, to, to uh, help close this gap on disparities in healthcare. Can you pick out three things you think would be most helpful from a policy perspective? Yeah, so that's a, not an easy question because uh, tackling inequities is certainly challenging. Um, so I, I, I would certainly say um, at the provider level, 
Um, we really need to make sure that people are educated and trained to try and reduce bias and really have sort of an anti-racism uh, approach and curriculum. And so education is really uh, critical. I also think if we look at who is in the workforce, that's a really big issue. And we know that there are huge disparities in, in, in who, for example, physicians are. So, uh, you know, Black physicians and Hispanic physicians are really underrepresented. And when you when you have sort of more diversity at the table, then certainly you can come up with um, answers to complex questions more efficiently and, and really um, getting different kind of perspectives. So I think thinking about, you know, and really creating policies to make sure that the healthcare providers really ref reflect the population is critical. And then of course, access to care is, is you know, absolutely necessary. And so having insurance, having access to care, you know, it's, it's, it's really impossible to, to make substantial changes without that. And so we really have to make sure that everyone has access to care and the, uh, and the insurance to cover that. You have such a unique experience because I know that you were on the front lines of uh, coronavirus patients and cases caring for them um, in New York City. Can you do you have any anecdotes from that that experience that you could share with our audience? And um, you know, are there any ways in in which you feel as though um, you know, sort of the experience of of these patients who are quite ill with coronavirus isn't being fully understood? Yeah. So I I was. Um deployed, uh, like many other providers, um, to work to go from the outpatient clinic into the hospital. And I was deployed uh, in the middle of March. And that was when we were in the um, really steep curve, the surge of, of COVID-19. And this was in the Bronx. Again, we were hit particularly hard. Um, it was a very, very challenging time. Uh, there was incredible fear, incredible uncertainty, uh, isolation. Uh, at that time, we really had very little understanding of the virus. And so I personally removed myself from my family, lived in one part of the house, used, you know, a different bathroom, slept in a different area, used different utensils, and really completely separated myself from my family because I was didn't want to put them at risk for getting an infection. Um, there was so much that was unknown. Our policies were changing literally by the hour. We were having multiple conference calls every day to say, you know, now you're supposed to wear this mask. Now you're supposed to wear this face shield. Now we're supposed to give this medication. No, now we're supposed to give a different medication. No, now it's in a different group of people that we're giving those medications. And so we really had very little science to guide uh, our care. And it was, you know, evolving very, very rapidly. And so, so there was constant change and just, again, a lot of uncertainty. Um, one of the most frustrating uh, and challenging parts was, uh, you know, we, we go into medicine to care for people and to help them be healthy. And uh, we had so little to offer our patients and our patients were scared. They were alone um, and, and we really had little to offer. And so being in that position uh, was unusual, especially in America. And, and so that, you know, feeling helpless, but, but, but really wanting to help patients who were scared, it, it was, was so challenging. And the last thing that I would say was, while all of this was happening, um, sort of part of the worst experiences was really feeling that like we were unprotected. And um, 
you know, we have heard that there was a shortage of the personal protective equipment or PPE across the country. Uh, there was a shortage across the city and the state and New York. Um, and, you know, I certainly felt like there was a real lack of, of leadership to, to protect the healthcare workers who were putting themselves at risk. Um, we, before COVID-19, for example, we would take an N95 mask and we would use it one time for one patient and then we would discard it. But during COVID-19, uh, we went from that to wearing an N95 for an entire week. Uh, and, and so, which is really unthinkable. Um, and during that entire week, that was what the recommendations were from the CDC for resource poor countries. So I never in my life imagined that practicing medicine in the United States, that I would be following the CDC guidelines for a research poor country. But that's in fact what we were at the time. So things are now much better, you know, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm still concerned. And, and in fact, when I went back into the hospital in May, like I would not throw away or, you know, remove my N95 mask until I got a new one. And I think that a lot of the medical providers felt the same way. And so, you know, I am very concerned about, a, you know, a sort of next, another surge in the winter and what that'll mean. And I, I think we're better prepared now than we were before, but, but I'm still concerned. Well, and as you note, uh, we have discovered, I know medical professionals have discovered better ways of caring for patients. We've learned more about the science of this. And I know people have said that has contributed to what we saw. It seemed to be a lower fatality rate uh, through kind of the surge in the, in the summer and the early fall. Um, knowing what we know now about COVID-19, are there any ways in which you think the treatment could have, would have been different um, in, you know, in New York and other places back in April? Sure. I mean, I, I wish I wish that we we would have known what we know now. Definitely. I mean, we were figuring this out. In fact, at, at Montefiore and Einstein, we had we were part of many trials looking at remdesivir, looking at convalescent plasma, looking at steroids. Um, so so you know, and and this I mean, this is the quickest the science has moved as far as I've ever seen. And I and I you know have my own research studies that I'm conducting, and so. This is fast for science that we've learned. And now that we have learned these, of course, we've put you know, protocols in place and we see that um, you know, there's, despite the increasing infections, there's the, the death rate is not, not as high. And so that's, that's good news. But you know, it's, it's still, you know, we, we of course wish we had more. Um, a lot of the medications are really for very specific situations and very specific, you know, patients with very specific presentations, and it's not necessarily across the board. Um, and, you know, we'll continue to learn and we'll continue, you know, to see collaboration between scientists about potentially even better treatments as we go forward. So it is, you know, again, much better than it was in March, but it still, um, you know, feels unsatisfying. What's your outlook for the fall and winter? Because on one hand, as we've been talking about, the treatment has gotten better and we are in many ways better prepared. And yet we're also entering the, the normal flu season, the cold season, people will be indoors more. Are you optimistic, pessimistic? What's your frame of mind on that at the moment? Yeah, it's hard to know. I guess um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think one of the things, the big, you know, really, the biggest message right now is for people to get their flu shots. 
get vaccinated against flu, because that is something we know that we can help prevent. Um, you know, I think it's going to be a little bit chaotic when people have flu-like symptoms. What is that going to mean? What do they have? What are they infected with? You know, um, so as, as much as we can do in terms of prevention, um, that's really the, the best, you know, strategy going forward. So I, I, I strongly, strongly recommend more than ever that it is now time to get our flu shots. And, and these are the messages that my patients who in the past have been hesitant to get flu shots are now you know, understand the unique situation and are much more amenable. I know my colleagues have written a considerable amount about the emotional toll on frontline medical providers, particularly those that found themselves in situations where they were simply overwhelmed uh, last spring. What are some ways that you and perhaps your coworkers sort of managed that emotional toll as you found yourselves caring for COVID patients? Yeah, it's 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 a huge emotional toll, and I think a lot of us um, really un, sort of underestimated uh, how this was going to impact us. It was really traumatizing, and in fact, most of the time when I sort of, you know, go back and look at videos or pictures, you know, I, I become tearful because I just sort of relive that experience. Um, I personally uh, have incorporated long walks and hikes uh, and being in nature as, as something that helps me clear my head. Um, I also write, and so that's really cathartic for me. And I've written an article about the experience and along with my colleagues. Um, in addition, you know, we, we have worked with our mental health providers and collaborated. So at Montefiore, we developed a program where we actually matched uh, the frontline providers with mental health providers and really had regular check-ins to see, you know, was there anything going on? Did people want to talk, you know, or text or email or whatever? And, you know, that the, that the and, and just making sure that the mental health providers were really there and partnering with front, frontline providers. Uh, in addition, we had things like wellness stations across the hospital where people could just come and be quiet and, you know, um, meditate or, you know, listen to calming music. So all, So all kinds of sort of programs to really try and address, um, you know, mental health issues and really the trauma uh, that so many people faced. I want to talk for a minute about the opioid crisis, which of course was a huge focus in the, in the last couple of years and seems to not be getting much attention now this year with everything going on. But I know there are real concerns that the pandemic could be uh, making it worse again. Uh, you've been interviewed several times by uh, colleagues about this. I want to uh, ask a question from one of our viewers. Kevin Doyle from Virginia asks, how should the U.S. reprioritize its response to the opioid epidemic given the pressing issues of COVID-19? What are the implications of not doing so? Yeah, so that's a great question. So if, if we don't pay attention, we will absolutely continue to have more problems. That is for sure. Um, so what we do know is data have recently um, come out about 2019. So this is pre-COVID. And we know that the rates of overdose uh, and death uh, related to overdose have continued to increase, have continued to get worse. So this is the worst we've ever seen in our country ever. Um, and that's pre-COVID-19. So now during COVID-19, it's really uh, the, the data are not clear on how it's really affected people who use drugs. Um, but what we do know is that 
social isolation, which is again, of course, one of the recommendations um, when people are infected with COVID-19, that is actually very problematic for people who use drugs because when people use drugs and if they're alone, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're, put, they're at risk for overdosing and dying and sort of not having anybody been able to help them. So that, that's certainly one issue. The other issue that we see um, with, with drugs and COVID-19 is that the market for illicit drugs has changed and maybe decreased such that people lose their tolerance to the, the drugs that they're used to taking. And then all of a sudden, if they go back to taking the same amount, they, they would put themselves at risk for overdose. So these are real concerns that, that, that um, are happening with COVID-19. On the, on the flip side, um, there have been substantial changes in the regulations that have really allowed us to provide uh, treatment for opioid use disorder um, in a much uh, um, sort of more lenient way. And that's, and that's been very beneficial to our patients. So, you know, telehealth is one piece of that. So people do not need to physically come in to the medical facilities in order to get prescriptions or to get their care. Um, we have had uh, provided more medication for the treatment of opioid use disorder for you know a longer period of time with refills um, and again not requiring face-to-face -face visits. Uh, certainly, our methadone programs, which is also a main part of treatment for opioid use disorder, uh, has reduced the requirements for in-person visits as well. Um, so I think that some of these policy changes are really beneficial uh, to patients with with opioid use disorder. And you know, right now we're at a time to to really reassess the policies. Do we need should should we go back to the policies pre-COVID? I think no. I think some of our policies were frankly antiquated, um, and so we have the opportunity to now reassess as we go forward what the policies should look like. And again, they should really be based on evidence um, and data that, to get the best treatment for people who have opioid use disorder, because we know that treatment with medication works. It saves lives, and people need that. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Dr. Chinazo Cunningham and Dr. Vivek Morthy for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Paige. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.